Hello, welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen. Once again, solo podcasting. A lot of uh, my co-hosts are uh, off and busy with the various other, you know, life tasks. So I'm coming to you to discuss a few things that uh, uh, interest me and hopefully you'll find interesting as well. So today we're going to be talking about second language acquisition. So in the case of second language acquisition, I have a little bit of knowledge here. So I both uh, taught uh, a second language. Uh, So I was an instructor for a little while in Dutch. and I also have uh, had the obviously the role of the learner. So uh, my native language being English, uh, I learned Dutch as a uh, 19-year-old, and um, and then since then have learned a few other languages uh, to some level of basic uh, ability. So we're going to talk all about second language acquisition, both what languages to acquire, how to acquire them, strategies, um, studies, testing, all those types of things. Um, but I wanted to start with just discussing what languages people choose to learn. This almost seems like kind of a an American problem, <laughs> if that's uh, fair to say. It's not really the case that, in, in most other countries, at least in my experience, uh, if you, you, you don't ask yourself what second language you want to learn because there's a automatic second language to learn, right? They're, they're either the neighboring country or in a lot of cases it's English because that's kind of the lingua franca of the world at the moment. Um, but the idea of being able to pick any arbitrary language and saying, oh, this is the one I really wanted to learn, that is kind of a a privilege uh, that uh, people that need language for functional reasons don't really address. Um, so I'm going to discuss it, but I know that it's not always necessarily the most relevant question. A lot of people, you're coming to this podcast uh, about second language acquisition to learn about what uh, what ways to, to tackle it, and we're going to get there. So don't uh, don't jump off yet. But uh, as far as like second uh, picking a second language, because I think a lot of people, at least in the United States, and that's where most people listen to this podcast still, um, they jump in and, and they jump in in high school or even maybe even a little earlier than that, and, and there's only a couple languages offered. And so be it Spanish or German or French or something along those lines offered in most uh, junior high or high schools in, uh, in the United States. Um, those languages can be incredibly useful, especially Spanish. Um, but let's, what, I, I want to uh, establish some criteria here based uh, to actually make a informed decision uh, on what language to learn as opposed to just uh, this is the one that I my my parents told me to, or this is the one that my friends are learning, or for whatever other reason. So as far as uh, establishing some criteria, the, I guess my first criteria is the one that most, like I said, other countries are uh, using, and that's usefulness. Um, and usefulness can be broken down into a lot of other subcategories as far as trying to figure out which. Um, you know, how to how to rank languages based on useful usefulness. The first one, of course, being proximity. Uh, if I am learning Korean and I live in the United States and I've never been to Korea, and my only interaction with uh, Korean people is occasionally I see a Korean family in the supermarket, 
that's not exactly going to be useful to me, right? I, if I have no family members, no travel plans, no particular tie-in to the culture or whatever, the idea that I'm going to learn Korean because I think it looks cool is not going to usually prove to be enough to get me to the uh, the finish point. Um, so, uh, so proximity can be one to, to look at. Obviously, I live in Southern California, very close to Mexico. So, uh, a lot of Spanish speakers around here, and therefore it makes sense to learn some Spanish. Uh, so that's one criteria, uh, as far as one, one way to kind of judge usefulness. Another one would be how many L1 speakers, or mono, uh, well, I guess there's two questions here. L1 speakers, so that's your first language speakers of, of a language, right? So if I decide I want to learn um, some kind of small language, uh, let's say, um, I'm going to actually pick on the Danish a little bit here. So let's say I want to pick Danish as a language I want to learn. Um, Denmark is a great country, and I, as a slight aside to pull us quickly into uh, what I usually give us an update on our user base, uh, user base, I'm a software guy, so you can forgive me the terminology slip here. Uh, our listeners, uh, we've got uh, listeners all over the world, including in Denmark. However, um, we don't have a lot of listeners in Denmark, you can tell based on the stats that we get. Um, my name is Carl Christensen. If you Googled Carl Christensen, like the Danish flag would come up. Like the, the Danish national anthem would play in the background. Um, I talk about a Danish name, Carl. All right, Christensen. Uh, I know that a Christensen recently scored a goal for the uh, Danish national team in the Euro Cup. I mean, come on, like Denmark needs to represent here, and and I, I'm I know I don't speak Danish, and we're going to talk about that in a second here. But um, I know that the vast majority of Danish will bring us right back into second language acquisition here, away from our, our listeners. Uh, the majority of Danish people, um, this, there are millions of people in Denmark that speak Danish, obviously, but the majority of those people speak English as well. Um, so. Not only is the question of how many speakers are there, so there are millions of Danish speakers, uh, but be going beyond that to how many of them are monolingual uh, you know, native L L1 speakers of that language. So if I chose Danish, maybe you know that's really useful. If I go to Denmark, only in as much as I'm very fluent in it, right? But if I go and I've got some passable Danish and I go into or a restaurant to order or if I go to a museum or whatever and I'm trying struggling along with my Danish, I guarantee they, uh, someone's, uh, uh, the, the tour guide or the restaurant worker, whoever it is, just starts talking to you in English. I, I actually visited Iceland, Iceland here a number of years ago for a uh, academic conference, and I, uh, <laughs> I didn't. I generally, when I go to another country, I at least spend a little bit of time trying to learn the language. And in the case of um, Iceland, I just, for whatever reason, it just didn't register for me to try to learn a little bit of Icelandic, and so I went there just feeling bad. And, and I remember my first interaction with the. Uh, I went up, I was at a gas station, I was going to go order some, I, I'm buying something anyway, and I go up and I, I look kind of hesitantly and, and uh, ashamedly at the employee there and say, English? And she says, yes, of course I speak English. <laughs> uh, because of course she speaks English. Because 
uh, in all of these Scandinavian countries, they not only speak, so in Iceland, uh, in Iceland they speak Icelandic, they speak Danish, and they speak English. And they speak all of them probably to a degree to which most uh, people in the United States don't even have a great control over their first language. Uh, so, uh, when once again, looking at usefulness, L1 speakers, um, just a number of people that live in a country isn't the only thing you got to look at. You have to look at how many of those people speak uh, only that language, or, or at least not another language that you speak, if that makes sense. So, um, all right, let's move on. So another one last thing about usefulness is uh, another way to measure usefulness is just uh, economics, right? Our last podcast, go back and listen to that one. Uh, as far as money and, and supply and demand and all those things, if there is uh, a lot of uh, money to be had, uh, economic opportunity to be had, uh, if you can speak a particular language, say Japanese or Chinese or some uh, Chinese, obviously there are a lot of reasons to learn that as far as usefulness goes, but uh, but economics can play a big role. So Germany is a, is a massive uh, economic engine as well, um, so that could be a reason to learn German. While mo a lot of the German population also speaks English, uh, you know the ability to speak some fluent German might uh, you know uh, help you if you want to get a job in Germany or something along those lines. Alright, so other reasons are how to rank what language you want to learn. So family ties, obviously, if your grandma speaks a particular language, or your grandpa, or whatever it is, uh, or like like myself, my, your name is uh, very ethnically one uh, from one country, maybe you feel a draw to learn a particular language. Um, I'd love to have enough Danish listeners that I feel like I have to learn Danish. Um, I have... Uh, obviously, family history in Denmark. Um, I don't have any current family that lives there, so uh, I don't have any reason to learn Danish for that uh, for you know for family ties reasons. Um, and then the last reason, uh, last consideration, one of these criteria to, to rank how to uh, pick a uh, to, to pick a language to learn would be how leverageable is it? Can I use this to leverage to learn other languages? Right. So if you wanted to learn uh, Latin, for example, right? How useful is Latin? Well, not, right? Like, uh, of, of course it's not useful. Nobody speaks Latin. Uh, you know, maybe if you could time travel, right? It would be useful. But nobody speaks Latin, so why would you learn Latin? Well, Latin is um, the uh, is the precursor to a lot of the uh, Western European languages that we have right now. So obviously Italian, Spanish, uh, Romanian, um, all of these Western Indo-European Indo languages uh, share a lot of roots, uh, root words, and, and sometimes syntax and those types of things with Latin. So while if you learn lang uh, Latin to some fluent ability, maybe you've gone too far, uh, some ability to recognize Latin structures and Latin words and Latin vocabulary probably could be very leverageable across lots of different languages, uh, where the cognates and cognates are, are words that uh, exist in both languages that share a common root in, in, a, in a, uh, a parent language, right? So language families, um, are, you, know, you can trace them back to uh, hundreds of years to where the languages split off, different groups of settlers went one way and then another went another way, and then that's how you get French versus Spanish, or that's how you get German versus Dutch. Um, and so tracing your 
uh, cognates in different languages can be as simple as saying, you know, how recently was the language split off, and the more recently it happened, the more cognates you're generally going to run into. Uh, and cognates are obviously wonderful. If you've ever learned another language and you're and you you're looking at the language and saying, oh, I recognize a lot of those words already, uh, then you've obviously got a uh, a great start. And we're going to talk about that. So let's talk about let's move on from which language to learn. So hopefully, obviously, you have a clear idea going in. Um, with your eyes wide open as far as what, uh, why you're learning the language that you're going to learn, and let's look at where to start. Um, a lot of options out there, right? Always have been, um, and now some people think it's sufficient to just you know, have the resources at your fingertips, like a Google Translate or some machine translation thing or um, something along those lines. Uh, however, that's going to function in a lot of cases, but it doesn't give you the personal satisfaction. It also doesn't doesn't uh, work in all situations, right? If you, you can't have a conversation with someone on the street, you can't, uh, along those uh, those types of lines, at least not very well, if you're trying to pass it through some phone app that is translating it or interpreting it live for you. So it's worth it to still learn that, uh, that language. And uh, so... Where do you start? Well, you do need resources. So besides machine translation, which can be a resource to learn a language, right? It can certainly be one of the resources you use. There's phone apps and those types of things. But as far as the linguistic, let's take it down to the linguistic level uh, besides resources. But what, what do you need to have available to you at the linguistic level? So if you've listened to these podcasts in the, pa- in the past, I've talked a lot about language. I'm a linguist by uh, education, a computer science uh a computer scientist by trade, so um, I am very aware and and uh, grateful for the phone apps and those types of things. But the linguistic uh, structure that you can that you can get to learn a language, I think, is invaluable. So, and I, I've mentioned this before as one of my crusades in the past. Something I'd love to do is is have everyone learn some basic level of linguistics because trying to learn a second language if you if you truly are just monolingual and then jumping in to learn a second language it can be incredibly daunting and overwhelming for a lot of people and so getting some basic structure of language knowing what syntax means knowing what morphology is and phonetics and phonology and semantics all these different um, parts of a language uh, and how they structure a language and how um, understanding that can better help you uh, put a framework around how to learn a second language. So uh, if I say, oh, you need to understand the grammar, well, you, you know what grammar is, right? That grammar and syntax, not quite synonyms, but certainly close uh, as far as saying that's, you need to know the word order, you need to know how words um, can be put together in a particular sentence, those types of things, right? Uh, morphology, the different word endings, uh, be that case. In a lot of languages, you have something called case, uh, and that's, um, in some languages, that's incredibly complicated for fem- not just me- uh, masculine and feminine, but uh, accusator- accusative, um, objective case, all these other cases where you have... and. And if those words don't mean anything to you, right, then when you're starting to learn Latvian or whatever and they have something like nine cases, when they said the objective 
I don't know all the cases in Latvian or Lithuanian or whatever it is, but they have lots of cases from what I remember. Um, and if you don't know what some of these uh, linguistic words mean, it it's like learning a new language to learn a new language, right? Um, and so getting that under your feet right away, knowing what some syntax and morphology and phonology words are, like uh, what an object is in a sentence and what a subject is in a sentence and what... Um, prepositions are and how they relate because different languages use prepositions in, in kind of different ways. Um, you kind of need to go back to your, your grammar school roots uh, in order to, to have a better structure on language, um, in order to better acquire it. Um, so that I think that is important, I really do. Uh, if however you don't have that and you now have a limited amount of time to learn a new language, you kind of just have to press forward, right? Um, if you don't have any background in, in, in very much in grammar and or any in linguistics, like most people out there, uh, then just then you have to talk about um, what is you, you've got to find your very strong motivation. And uh, that's a big thing in, in second language acquisition fields is the uh, studies have been done to, to look at, obviously, the, the, if you have a strong motivation to learn language, your success at learning that language uh, incredibly <laughs> is very high, right? Um, of course it is, because if I'm motivated because I am dating someone that speaks that language, guess what? I'm going to do a good job uh, because I have a very uh, real reason to learn that language, and uh, my motivation is high. If it's for a job, my motivation is high, right? If it's just for some passing school trip and or study abroad or something like that, maybe my motivation is temporary and I know that, right? So all of a sudden when I'm spending an hour learning Chinese, I'm like, well, I could be doing any anything else. And so all of a sudden my motivation is lacking. You need that motivation, you need that interest uh, in order to, to put it in... Uh, put in the time because all language, however you structure it, however you get your resources, be it, uh, you know, I think a good dictionary, a good app, um, a good book. Um, I mean, and I mean actually like a novel and it's just reading in that language, breaking it down. Um, I think that's important. Uh, the, all those things will be insufficient if you don't have a good motivation to do it. So uh, get yourself that motivation. If you don't currently have it, find a way to get it, right? Try to make a friend that is uh, bilingual or in, in that language and or plan a long trip to go there and, and then shove yourself in a situation where you have to use it. Um, volunteer at a, 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 if you're learning a language just for your your area, go and volunteer and give you, so be like, oh, I'll, I'm, I'll be able to help in a month. And then all of a sudden you've given yourself this hard deadline of I need to go down to help with uh, th this group of refugees or whatever in a month and I don't know a word of, of this language I need to go learn that so get yourself that motivation and give yourself a hard deadline um, okay so uh, besides resources and motivation and and then just kind of a base linguistic set of words and and uh, and structure um, you have to ask yourself what where you want to start as far as most people are mostly interested in learning to speak a language. That's got the most utility as far as what perception goes at least. Um, but is once again, evaluate your use case. Uh, if you're learning Chinese for a job, are you going to really be 
speaking with people in Chinese? Are you going to be writing and reading Chinese? Because right, the, those are very different, uh, especially in Chinese or, or those types of languages where you don't, you're no longer working with a traditional alphabet, uh, either Cyrillic or, or you know the, any of those alphabets are, are far more acquirable uh, by those native language speakers of English or, or a uh, versus a kind of a pictographic or symbolic language where you have uh, you know characters and those don't mean anything to you right go go try to learn Chinese or um, those things are significantly more challenging and so do you if your use case is where do where do I uh, I, mean, I need to learn to read and write. Well, maybe that's where you start as opposed to trying to learn how to say where's the bathroom in Chinese. Maybe you need to start with writing to learn, uh, learning to write the characters, learning to read the characters and recognize them. Um, because you can learn that independent of speaking, right? My, my dad, for example, learned in, in college, he learned uh, German. And he said he actually learned it pretty well, but he actually never learned how to speak it. He only learned how to read it and write it. Uh, they never were required to speak it, and so that's what he did. Um, so, once again, use case, motivation, all those things come into what what aspects of a language am I learning? Um, so, another place to evaluate what and uh, where am I starting is, I think a lot of people think that in order to, to learn a language, they've got to learn it like like they did when they were a baby, right? Uh, when they learned their first language, is just jump in and I'll be able to figure it out. Well, I mean, we could talk about the science of it, and there's, you know, the immersion is, is useful, and we'll come back to that here in just a minute, actually, but it's, it, it is the case that you're no longer a baby. If you're listening to this and you understand me, you're not a baby, right? And le learning a second language is different than learning a first language, um, and, and that's okay. It should be different, um, and it also turns out that babies take years to learn a language, right? Um, so learning it like a baby would take a while. So um, give yourself a different structure. Uh, immersion, just for the sake of immersion, is like driving down, if I drove down to the middle of Guadalajara and got out and tried to interact. Good luck, right? That's not going to happen. Um, now immersion, as far as going to uh, going to an immersion, immersion school, right? that's a whole different set of, of principles. And, and then that, we're going to be talking more about the learning strategies and uh, language acquisition strategies that, uh, here in a second. Um, so don't. It, it's okay to learn the second language differently than you did your first language. And go in knowing that. Don't try to just, I'm going to listen to a podcast in Spanish. And I'm going to, you're not. You're going to fail miserably. You're going to get discouraged and you're going to quit because no, that's not how you. That's not how you're going to acquire the language. Now, uh, as you work up, that can be a useful tool, right? That can be one of the things you do. Listen to a Spanish podcast, um, listen to Spanish radio, or whatever else it is. But it's not going to be the first thing that you do, and it shouldn't even be one of the early things that you do, because all it's going to do is intimidate you and discourage you. It should start off with very simply learning some basic vocabulary, some basic um, morphology, and that's and that's your conjugations and those types of things, right? You need to learn uh, how to conjugate verbs, you need to know how to structure sentences, and that's where you need to start, right? And that's obviously where the apps take you. Um, but don't don't just skim by like that, those things as if they don't matter, that they matter the most. Um, all right, so learning strategies, um, 
we already started talking about immersion. So immersion schools are, um, I did not go to one, right? I, um, the way I learned uh, my second language, uh, Dutch, I went to, um, so I, I learned Dutch as part of ch a church service um, experience, a church missionary experience. And so I went and uh, I learned Dutch in a, a relatively small amount of time. It was partially immer immersive, right? Our Dutch language instructors spoke Dutch to us a lot, but not uh, not exclusively, right? They were bilingual Dutch English as well. And so they did and could help us. And I'm guessing that's what you get in most um, uh, Dutch, uh, sorry, most um, immersion programs, uh, be it in an elementary school or wherever they do them in different uh, different levels of schooling. Um, I'm guessing that's what you get. But, um, I did, when I, I took a, a Dutch class uh, in, in at the university level when I, uh, later on, um, and our teacher there assumed, because we're a high level, a 300 or 400 level, uh, an upper level Dutch class, that we could all speak Dutch. And so at no point at in, in that class, the whole semester, he spoke not a single word of English, right? It was just Dutch all the time, because that's what we should be expected uh, to, do, to know and do. Um, at lower levels, it can help to interact a little bit in the L1, in my experience. Um, so don't uh, beat yourself up if you do need a little bit of explanation and, and uh, not just pure immersion, right? Not at least right, not right off the bat. Now it can be helpful um, as one, once again, one of the tools that you use. So if you are never being immersed into it, uh, if all you ever are doing is talk, uh, you know, the a Duolingual uh, app um, or you know one of those types of things, then you're probably not getting sufficient exposure to what the language sh should sound like and how quickly the words really do get put together. And and then when you hit the real world here after studying for six months on your phone, then you're blown away, right? So once again, these things have to be taken in the right order and and the right um, amount uh, in order to get the L2 acquisition. Uh, as smooth as it can be, and it's hard work for everyone. So, immersion is a, a important tool, but uh, when you start learning a language, don't don't overdo it. I guess is my point. Okay. So, uh, other than that, other strategies. So, there's there's these three uh, discussed in L2. Um, these three strategies discussed in some L2 research about uh, informal. Um, language learning versus purposeful language learning versus formal language learning. And I've, I've had exposure to all of these. I've been in the second language acquisition area. Uh, I've given you my background for a while. But uh, informal is, is kind of just generally what... So I, I, I've been studying Chinese on, on my phone, the Duolingo app, and there are lots of different apps out there, right? Um, just kind of casually, right? And that's your informal. Like I'm just... Um, here and there picking up something. Um, purposeful, uh, and, and that's one strategy of learning a language. Right? It's not going to take you very far, but maybe you learn some phrases or whatever and you go on a trip and you can use that. Purposeful is I'm going to get a, uh, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do this daily, I've got a certain amount of time I'm going to do it, I'm going to structure it in a particular way that I can work on my grammar and I can work on, and that apps can do that too, right? The um, different apps can help you in that way. So more than just informal, those can actually give you kind of a purposeful, direct um, uh, strategy as well as far as making sure that you have particular uh, areas of the 
language that you're tackling, that you're building on on vocabulary that you have and grammar that you've learned so that you can put those together in, in a particular way with a given purpose and uh, generally those you have a goal right you're trying to not just oh I'm casually trying to learn this purposeful is I'm at the end I'm going to take a test or at the end I'm going to go um, do a study abroad experience or whatever that might be you have a specific purpose in mind and you are taking uh, these uh, this language learning uh, in a more structured way. And then there's formal. And formal is I'm going to sign up for a class and or I've got um, certain hours set apart in the day where I study and I, it generally does imply that I'm doing it with, with other individuals. I have a teacher or I have someone that gives me constructive and useful feedback um, and that is um, and, and those that one in my experience has the most success, right? Informal and purposeful. Uh, informal, as you can imagine, generally you get what <laughs> you get out of it, what you put into it, and it's usually not much, right? That's almost as bad as like high school Spanish. Uh, purposeful is uh, my my dad learned Spanish, um, and he can speak Spanish reasonably well, um, and he did it without a class he did it without he just sat down and and worked through a, a spanish textbook and read and talked and and did his best for over the course of a couple of years um and did pretty well um and and he can communicate quite well and he can speak quite well uh his, his accent um i think leaves a bit to be desired but um he succeeded, and but the, I guess the, the the point of that is that he's the exception, not the rule. Generally, people that aren't that are doing it out on their own, um, either on a phone app or a textbook or whatever, and without a without a formal structure, um, even however purposeful they might be, it, it, the the difficult nature of uh, second language acquisition uh, overcomes their motivation, and therefore they fail. Uh, so I do recommend if you coming into this, formalize it in a way. Formalize it, get into a class, get into a group where you have accountability, right? And that's this, what formal second language acquisition offers you, is you, all of a sudden now you are accountable to someone. It's no longer at your own uh, pleasure. It's now, okay, I actually put money up for this, or my teacher is going to yell at me, or whatever it might be. Um, and so uh, formal language learning is... is incredibly useful. I think there's a movie recently about, isn't there a kind of a indie movie about, uh, this is where a co-host would be useful. I'm pretty sure there's a recent indie movie um, about language learning and, and learning uh, a, a language over, over Zoom. Um, anyway, I don't remember the name of it, but that's the idea. Even if it's just that, even if you just, it's, you signed up for lessons online and you have a teacher that's teaching you. Great. Useful. Um, and then another, uh, so strategy-wise, and this is more um, kind of at, at a, a high level, is a lot of learning strategies and a lot of apps and those types of things try to mix input and output, meaning you're both reading and listening and producing, uh, speaking, writing, whatever it might be. Um, and so you do have to be aware of those things, right? You, you need to not just listen and consume you need to be able to produce uh, if you need to write if that's one of the things that you're trying to learn how to do you need to be able to do that as well uh, and so that will also kind of shape your strategies right the um, 
the ability to spell words and, and, and be able to, uh, that's very important and, and you need to build that into your, your time if, um, if writing and reading are, are part of your desired outcome for the, the L2. Uh, if not, if you're just going for kind of oral fluency, then maybe all you need is the ability to conjugate the verbs, not the ability to spell them and know exactly how all of that works. It's just a question of, oh, I need to be able to put a verb with a, a noun properly. Um, whatever case they might take, I need to know that in as much as I need to speak it. Uh, if there are written forms that never get used in, in oral uh, production, then uh, not relevant to me, right? Um, Alright, so there are a lot of different strategies and we could talk more about the the second language acquisition research and, and different strategies that are employed as far as um, uh, different uh, amounts of production and, and, and translation involved, but we're not going to move into that as opposed to uh, asking more of these layman questions. I think we're, we, once again, we try to specialize here and is how long will it take? Because you now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you've been thinking, okay, uh, yeah, maybe I want to do a pod. I want to le learn a language, or I have wanted to learn a language, or maybe, um, you know, th this is something that you be uh, could find interesting if you knew how long it would take. Um, but you've heard that learning a language is hard, and you know that certain languages are harder than others, and and therefore, you you don't ever invest the time because you don't know what you're going to get out of it. So there are different. Um, uh, ways to rank difficulty of languages and how long they might take for you to learn and obviously it does depend on the learner of course and the amount of uh, uh, motivation that you have but the Foreign Service Institute of Language uh, gives you um, has, puts out this ranking of difficulty for um, languages uh, coming from English so if my L1 is English and I want to learn another language how difficult are are these uh, languages, and they categorize them um, based on different amounts of time that it will learn, take you to learn, uh, and put them in these different categories. So, category one languages, according to the For Foreign Service Institute language difficulty rankings, um, are languages like Danish, Dutch, French, Italian, Norwegians, Portuguese, Romanian, Spanish, and Swedish. They rec they uh, estimate and then they not just based on uh, crazy out there guesses but actually based on real world data and and their you know the amount of time it takes for them to teach uh, you know foreign service people these languages in a classroom setting they they, they estimate that it's going to take you somewhere between 24 and 30 weeks uh, or 600 to 750 class hours to uh, a reach a particular level of fluency. Uh, speaking and reading proficiency that um, that they need in order for you to be able to interact uh, in those countries. So once again, category one languages, Danish, Dutch, um, French, and, and from experience, they do rank French as slightly more difficult than those other ones that I mentioned, Italian, Norwegian, those ones. Uh, having learned Dutch from English, it is re uh, relatively simple. Um, it is pretty straightforward, um, and so yeah, it's a good one to start with. 
in as much as it is an easy one to start with. But going back to the first thing that we talked about in the podcast is how useful is it? Well, there's a lot of Dutch speakers in the Netherlands. Uh, they There is Suriname, where I lived, and go back and listen to that podcast because that one's a fun one. Um, and there's also the Dutch Antilles. Um, Afrikaans is very close to Dutch. So, uh, However, a lot, and I mean a lot, of Dutch speaker, uh, Dutch L1 um, speakers are also very fluent and very proficient in English. Uh, honestly, most of the Dutch people that I, I know, <laughs> uh, if you didn't know they spoke Dutch um, because you've interacted with them in English, then you certainly wouldn't know by talking with them, right? Like they have no, there's very little to no accent. They control English like a native, uh, meaning they they put together, they put sentences together perfectly. They and it, it, It's amazing how well the Dutch uh, have learned English, right? And so while you could learn Dutch, and I think it's a great language, and I do speak Dutch uh, to a pretty good fluency, um, it was far easier to do that in Suriname. <laughs> it was easy for me to acquire Dutch in Suriname than it would have been in the Netherlands, because in Suriname, most people there don't have as level as as a high fluency in English. And so, if I'm speaking them in Dutch, well, that's the only way we can communicate. Generally, um, they they speak uh, the Surinamese population sometimes. Uh, depending on obviously the level of education, uh, they have some English proficiency, but not like those in the Netherlands. So, well, I had the opportunity to go and immerse myself, and not really have the 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 back uh, the ability to go fall back on English. Those uh, of my peers that went to uh, the Netherlands uh, and and spoke Dutch in the Netherlands, also doing church uh, missionary work, uh, they. Ha- <laughs> Obviously, if 90% of the Netherlands, I think it's actually more than that, can speak fluent English and you're struggling with your Dutch, they're going to want to speak English with you <laughs> because uh, they have things to do. Um, anyway, so uh, those are category one languages, however. So if you're looking at, once again, the amount of time that you need to put in in order to learn a language with a particular fluency uh, and any of those languages that I just mentioned interest you, great, go for it. Um, Matt, who's on this podcast a lot, and I believe will be on the next one as well. I think we're going to be discussing, hopefully, algebra. Um, He speaks Romanian. That's a very useful one, um, because once again, while there are a number of Romanian uh, speakers that speak English as well, uh, a lot of those really are just monolingual Romanian. So uh, taking that into consideration. And then Spanish, obviously, being the most useful of those relatively English relatively easy languages to learn from English uh, because just the vast number of Spanish speakers uh, and also the proximity of those Spanish speakers to us in in the United States. Category 2 languages, so these they estimated probably uh, approximately 36 weeks to learn or 900 class hours. Those are German, uh, Haitian Creole, Indonesian, Malay, and Swahili. Um, I think there are a few of those aren't particularly high on the level of public interest. Uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but um, at least in the United States, not a lot of Swahili classes, you know? Not a lot of options there. But German, obviously one of the big ones. I, I took a number of years of German in high school. Um, so, and those, and that takes a while, right? The German is more complicated when coming from English uh, to learn than Dutch is, for example, even though Dutch and German are very close um, as far as vocabulary and, and, and the, those types of things. German has a case that, that uh, we 
don't in English. Um, grammar is is similar to Dutch, but still different enough that uh, that it is it's more challenging. Um, but category two language, category three languages. This is when you start getting to ones that uh, they say they take approximately 44 weeks to learn. So now you're coming up on almost a year, right, worth of of learning time. Um, that's 1,100 class hours, and these are Albanian, Armenian, Aramaic. Uh, let's say a couple of highlights here. There's a lot uh, here. Finnish, uh, Finnish is, is challenging, even though you'd imagine it's up there right by uh, the other Scandinavian countries. You think, oh, well, Finnish shouldn't be that bad. It really is. It really is very different uh, and very challenging. It's not uh, not in the same language family as any of the other Scandinavian languages, and so um, the uh, morphology of Finnish is very difficult. That means the way they put word endings on uh, words are very agglutinated. So you put a lot of different word endings on a single word in order to build uh, meaning from it. And so it's very different than what we do in English and or those other Scandinavian languages like Norwegian or Danish. Um, so uh, then you something like Russian. Obviously there you have the, the writing system as well. So now you're talking Cyrillic. So now you have to learn a different alphabet. And while it is an alphabet, not a uh, arbitrary uh, character system, uh, it is a different alphabet, and so it's going to take some work to, to learn that. Greek as well, same type of thing, different uh, alphabet, though maybe one you were slightly more familiar with, at least as uh, this layman right here, me, um, I'm more familiar with the Greek alphabet, even though I've neither ever learned, I've never learned Greek or Russian, I'm more cursorily familiar with the Greek alphabet, right, because we use that in scientific things, and um, versus Russian, where I don't have almost any expo exposure to Cyrillic. Uh, so, um, anyway, lots of other languages here that uh, that uh, in the Category 3 area. And then we get to these har the Category 4 languages, and these are, they, uh, 88 weeks is what they estimate for learning these languages. 2,200 class hours. So good luck, right? Um, Arabic. Chinese, and that's both Cantonese and Mandarin, and Japanese and Korean, and so these are the um, very challenging languages to learn. And I've I've taken Chinese in uh, at the university level three semesters. I've spent some time in China, um, and I can interact to a very basic level. Uh, I once made a lady cry. I didn't mean to. I really, I mean, I was trying to be nice. I was just having to declined that she was offering me some tea. I didn't want it. I just tried to do it nicely. And apparently I said something. <laughs> anyway, I'm just saying these languages are different enough that if you don't get them right, you'll make someone cry. Um, so uh, if you're trying to jump into Arabic or Chinese or Japanese or Korean, um, go in with your eyes wide open. No, it's going to take a long time. And if you're trying to read and write and all those different things, uh, learning to write Chinese is challenging. Um, learning to recognize the characters is easier, obviously, uh, than, than writing it. Writing there's a particular order that you have to... Anyway, we won't go into that type of calligraphy stuff or whatever. Um, so, uh, those are kind of the rankings of languages and how long it might take to learn those languages. Um, so, let's move on to a couple other things before we wrap up. What does it look like? What is language acquisition look like? Because maybe while you're going along, you're like, I don't even know if I'm making the right progress here. I don't know what it, what I'm supposed to be doing at this point. I've been doing my app for a while. I've been reading. I've been, you know, going to a class. And I'm, am I really at the 
stage of acquisition that I should be. So there actually are different, and this is based on the research, and, and second language acquisition is actually a class you can take in like linguistics um, or, or uh, yeah, and, and linguistics in college. Uh, so there's a whole time, uh, a whole class that you could study this, uh, and we're trying to discuss it here in about 40 minutes. Um, but there are five stages of acquisition according to some, you know, one, one of the theories about acquisition, second language acquisition, and the first one is silent or receptive phase. So that's your first phase of language acquisition. And that's when you're just sitting back and kind of just drinking in, right? You're just you're listening to the, the first words in Spanish and you're, hola, como estas? Or what, you know, um, and you're not saying much, you're just learning some vocabulary, a, a, phrase, a phrase or two there or here, um, and you're just trying to take take it in. So you're, there's some argument as to in, in the research about whether or not you're actually silent. Your, your brain is constantly producing things, even if your mouth isn't, um, but you're at least not like verbalizing a lot. Um, you say some vocabulary and some phrases. Second phase is early production, and this is when you start um, not only, so now you've got a few vocabulary words, and then you start coming, being able to produ produce some phrases, besides just um, donde esta, you know, um, you're now saying useful small phrases, uh, and being able to combine a couple words here and there. Not really in a sentence, but you've got some early production going on, and that's the second phase. So if you've moved on from silent and receptive to production, you've moved on to the second stage. Um, the third stage is speech emergence or production, and now this is where all of a sudden you can start putting some sentences, some ba basic sentences together. And this generally means you've learned thousands of words in that language. It's hard to communicate at all in any language if you don't have at least a, couple, a thousand or two thousand words on, in your command. If you can't command a thousand words, verbs, nouns, prepositions, adjectives, um, if you can't put those, uh, a thousand words on, on the table as far as being able to conjugate, and, and then you're not really going to be able to say anything. So that stage three means you've got those and you can start putting some basic sentences and phrases together and being able to connect words and, and phrases to make in a meaningful way to communicate. Um, and so when I, uh, when I was learning my, my Dutch, right, um, it's, it is exciting when you're able to do this. And I remember talking to another 19-year-old, another, uh, another kid, um, as, as we were doing this, and he was talking about how he felt so much more comfortable just listening, and he could understand a lot. It was just hard to produce. And it turns out that is the case for almost everyone, right? And that's what these phases are showing, is you get the accustomed to the hearing and being able to, oh, okay, I... Uh, understand what they were saying even if you don't catch everything right you can catch the meaning as opposed to when you have to produce all of that goes out the window you you're not can't just passively say oh i get what you're saying now it's up the production relies on your ability to to conjugate and 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 uh, put syntax together and and uh, words and phrases being pulled in uh, to 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 form meaning so uh the fourth stage of acquisition is intermediate 
fluency. And so this is where you've now taken it from small sentences, simple phrases, to actually being able to communicate and have a conversation, right? You're actually now uh, communicating in complex sentences with uh, subordinating conjunctions and all those other things. And now you can actually start thinking in that language. And that's always fun, right? I remember one of the first times I dreamed in Dutch, right? That's awesome because all of a sudden you're now like, okay, like even my subconscious is aware that I can put thoughts together in that language. Um, and uh, so that's an exciting level. It does take a lot of work to get there. So in my experience, if we go back to what we were just talking about as far as how long will it take, you're not getting to intermediate fluency until probably three quarters of the way through that time that we listed, right? You're not really um, able to communicate at that level without, you know, uh, hundreds, if not, depending obviously on the category, the language uh, difficulty, but uh, hundreds of hours of, of work. And, uh, and that is, uh, that's when, I think that's probably the most exciting part of it. So that's what you, the payoff is, is when you can go to that country, wherever it is, or with that group of people, whoever it is, and then you can feel like you can actually discuss things with them. Um, maybe not everything, probably struggle. Uh, at times, and, and uh, one of my, one of the most things, and let me prepare you before I give you this fifth, the, 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 I'll give you the fifth one, and then we'll, the, the story that I think every second language learner needs to have um, in the back of their mind. The, so the fifth one is continued language development or fluency, and that's just, obviously, once you can do complex sentences, it's not like there's another level where now all of a sudden you are, um, uber fluent and, and uh, a native uh, eventually you could potentially get to that level honestly right um, but it'll take a long time and, and so continued language development or fluency is just I'm living in the country I interact with it all the time I, I do it in my uh, a particular academic field or a particular uh, field of work and so I have my vocabulary is massive those types of things are what you need in order to really get that next level of fluency and move towards native fluency. Now, back to that story I was telling you about. So all of these things sound great, and when you get this intermediate fluency I was discussing, it's very exciting. You think you can discuss with someone. I remember in Suriname, I was there. I was discussing something with someone. I felt like I was doing a great job. I was I was uh, really putting you know, meaning together, and I thought, oh, I'm really doing a good job. And I remember them looking at me, this individual, this lady I was uh, talking with, and they turned to the um, the guy I was with, who was also a, a church missionary, and said, I don't speak English, so can you explain to me what he just said? <laughs> Bear in mind, I was not speaking English. I was speaking Dutch. <laughs> but apparently so badly. <laughs> it's so incorrectly that they actually thought I was speaking English <laughs> because whatever was coming out of my mouth didn't make any sense. <laughs> so uh, that didn't just happen to me, right? A lot of people I interacted with um, had that same L2 experience where they felt like they were at this intermediate fluency level. They're interacting with people. They're able to do all of these things. And then all of a sudden they get this gut check of, oh, actually, you were really still pretty bad at this. Uh, you conjugate all of your verbs incorrectly, or your pronunciation is so bad that I can't tell what you're saying half of the time. Um, so, be ready for that. 
take it in stride, recognize it's just another stage in development, move forward, um, and then uh, and don't be offended by the idea that uh, obviously uh, one of the things I'm about to talk about here is what um, is language transfer. So uh, that is, uh, and that's this idea that when I'm learning that my second language, whatever I learned in my first language, whatever my first language is, it's going to impact both how I learn and how I produce that second language for a long time, if not forever, right? Until I'm purely thinking in my L2 and, and, and that I go about a full day in that L2 or week or whatever, my L1 is still having a lot of impact on that L2. Uh, I think about it, I translate from L1 to L2, right? I'm going from an English sentence to a Dutch sentence. I'm not just producing a Dutch sentence spontaneously. Uh, my my English syntax is messing up my Dutch syntax. My English, my American accent is messing up my Dutch. Um, all of those things is language transfer, right? And that's what you don't get in your L1. Babies aren't uh, you don't have a baby accent, right? <laughs> they might not be able to produce particular sounds, but that's different than having Goo Goo Gaga somehow influence the way that they produce uh, their their actual L1, right? Um, but once we've learned the first language, the second language, unless you're learning them simultaneously, and that does happen, right? Kids that grow up in bilingual households, they're truly bilingual, right? No L1 because they're both L1. Um, and they generally take a longer time to learn their first languages because there are two of them and it takes them longer to really, they're not saying words as quickly, they're not putting sentences together as quickly as, as purely monolingual speakers are because they're dealing with two languages inside of their head. Uh, that's challenging even for a baby. But generally when they do get it, obviously then they are fully bilingual, right? They're as comfortable in... Uh, Korean as they are in English, or they're as comfortable in Chinese as they are in Japanese, or whatever other, you know, their two languages that they grew up with, they they don't feel more comfortable in one language or another. Maybe eventually they will, they'll pick one, right? But uh, at, at that baby level, they can uh, do both. So, But language transfer is a real thing for most of us second language learners. Uh, the other thing is age and ability really do play an impact. Some people are just better at learning a second language. It has to do with some cognitive abilities, just like some people are better at doing calculus, right? Um, there's just some innate ability for some people to pick up on conjugation and uh, syntax and accents and all of those things and you'll see that right um, and sometimes it's daunting but once again you did it in math class right you had that kid that was always better than you um, and she or he was uh, frustrating but you moved along and you did your thing so do it again right R recognize that just because someone else is better than you with that uh, learning a language doesn't mean that you can't also achieve um, and then your age and you've heard this, I'm sure, before, uh, and that there's a critical time to learn a second language. And by the time, if that window shuts, you're, it's going to be hard to learn a second language. That is true-ish, right? There is a critical time to learn language, uh, where, meaning it's easier and, and the L1 transfer to the L2 is not as severe um, because your, your mind is still malleable, a little more a little plastic. Um, and so you're able to put... Um, uh, the words, the L2 languages and thoughts kind of separate them easier um, from your L1. It is not the case, however, that there that you cannot learn a second language even to almost native fluency beyond that window. It's just harder. 
and it's true all the way up until you're 70, 80 years old, right? You can still do it. It's just harder, right? You've got to put more time, you've got to put more effort, you've got to put more structure, and that's what hopefully this podcast is about, is getting, giving you all of the uh, ideas and tools that you might need, uh, the resources you have to go grab yourself, right? But hopefully this can teach you what you might need. You need a vocabulary book? Sure you do. Uh, but you also need a class, and you need an app, and you need a reason, and you need all of these different things. Uh, and then you need to be patient, and, uh, and then uh, you'll achieve. Um, so a couple last things we wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about with general patterns of acquisition. Um, it turns out that most people learn particular word endings, like conjugations, in a particular order when you're learning English, right? So non-native English speakers generally learn um, particular word endings first. You can imagine the, the, the more common ones. Makes sense, right? Um, and so here years ago, decades ago, the, there was this second language uh, researcher that, that theorized that, that there was this hard and fast order of acquisition, of, uh, you know, be it morphology, and that's once again word endings or syntax. There's a way that everyone acquires the second language. And there is general rules. Statistically, you can make that case, but it is not hard and fast, and it's not the case that everyone learns those things in the exact same order. Uh, it happens in different rates, um, and there is some variability in the order that you acquire different word endings or the ability to use particular um, structures, grammatical structures. It's not like everyone acquires the exact same grammatical structures in the same order as you're learning a second language predictably. And a kind of common sense would tell you that as well, right? But for a while in second language acquisition, that was what they believed. And there is kind of, like I said, still an order of general acquisition. Um, and that's generally dictated by, by frequency, honestly. Um, and so language frequency, uh, word frequency, grammar frequency, all of those things matter, right? You can get a, a verb book that gives you the 200 most common verbs. Those are the ones you need to learn, turns out. Uh, and those are the ones that you generally will learn. That's the idea, is even if you're just exposing yourself to reading a book or listening to a podcast, those are the ones you're going to hear the most often. Therefore, your brain grabs them, has instances of them, and generalizes from them. Your brain is good at this. Obviously, like I said, as it gets older, maybe not quite as good, but still good. And it is good at grabbing instances and, and generalizing. So uh, last thing I want to discuss was language testing. Um, and so this is once now you learn a, a second language and you want to know, okay, well, I feel like I'm pretty good. How good am I? Um, so ask yourself, how do I test my oral ability? And that is... Um, uh, that's a good question, right? It's one thing to be able to test reading or writing. Those types of things are pretty clear-cut, right? Can I read it? Can I answer questions about it? Can I write a sentence? Can I um, either spelling or if it's you know a different alphabet? Do I you know do I know how to write that alphabet? Um, but how do I test oral ability? One of the difficult things you run into is sparseness. If, if so, if you're thinking, oh, well, I just sit down with someone that knows the language and they'll interview me and then they'll be able to tell me how good I am. And that's generally the idea. And it has been for decades, centuries even, of uh, language testing is, is that's how we tell whether or not someone's good at a language. They have a rubric. They look for specific things and they sit down and they interview you. 
um, and that's uh, a proficiency interview, an oral proficiency interview. Uh, however, one of the issues you run into is it's, it's even if the rubric and even with a good tester, there's this issue of sparseness. And that's, I don't have all the time in the world to test you in all the different ways that oral production matters in uh, first language. I, you know, I don't have eight hours to test you, right? I have, you have a half an hour interview. And if you're good at controlling a conversation limited uh, oral proficiency doesn't necessarily come out completely most uh, in some degree you'll probably be able to tell okay well they can't they don't have great control of it but you can kind of fake it in some cases if you can control the conversation in a particular way so that's this idea of sparseness um, I don't have all the time therefore I don't have all the data and if I don't have all the data I can't make all the assumptions I can't make I draw all the conclusions um, and that's where my pet uh, discussion of elicited imitation comes in. And once again, this has come up in many podcasts in the, pa in the past. Elicited imitation is literally just uh, say and uh, uh, listen and repeat. Um, so I hear a sentence and I have to produce it. And that is different than oral uh, production, right, to some degree. And so it's not perfectly uh, aligned with oral proficiency, but it gets you away from this sparseness issue where now I can specifically test you on grammar uh, a particular grammar principle I'm trying to get at right because I will say it to you and the idea is if I say it to you and I give you a, the right length of a sentence say eight words I want an eight word sentence and none of the words are too difficult right because if I make the words too difficult if the lexile uh, the the word density meaning it's really hard like they're all academic words you know if 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 it's not that, and I'm just looking at this grammar thing, and I say it to you, if you have acquired that ability to understand that piece of grammar, you will be able to reproduce it, right? You'll be able, your mind will be able to pull it back. Uh, even just hearing it one time, you'll be able to say it right back. And people that have not acquired that grammar structure will not have that ability, right? They will, they're, they're, brain will not be able to process that correctly so then it's just a sequence of sounds to them right and if it's eight words so that's 10 or 11 syllables um, your brain does not have the ability to memorize 10 or 11 syllables on the fly and reproduce them at least most people cannot uh, and therefore you can the tester can know okay this this language learner does not have the ability to understand that grammar piece because it didn't mean anything to them therefore they could not repeat it if it did mean something to them then they abstracted to meaning and once they went to meaning they they were able to chunk it differently in their memory and then they were able to put it right back into language because it wasn't just arbitrary sounds that they were hearing it was actually meaningful sounds and that's elicited imitation's general promise is the ability to target particular areas and say okay well how good am I at the language? Well, let's find out based on looking at specific parts of the language. There are a lot of other ways to test yourself, right? And I think one of the best ones is my wife and I were recently in Mexico. We went to Sam's Club because of course we did. Um, and we were trying to buy something. And I was trying to figure out if I could use the Sam's Club app on my phone. I was failing miserably. And so I thought, you know what? I've done some very basic Spanish. Let me go see if I can talk with someone here. And maybe someone here speaks English. Turned out no one there spoke almost any English, which was awesome. I loved that because it made me really try hard with my Spanish. Failed spectacularly um, in as much as I never got to use the app. I understood that 
from the other people that I couldn't use the app but, and didn't it was lost on me why I couldn't anyway but putting myself in that situation that's one of the best ways to test yourself is once again what what's your goal if your goal is to be able to communicate right then then go to Sam's Club if your goal is to be able to go to university there go sit in and audit a class or go to um, or if your goal is to help some refugees go go and do that whatever it is uh, you know make that uh, make that happen so i hope this podcast has been useful hope uh, your second language acquisition goes well and i hope i have enough danish people listen that it for- forces me to learn danish because i'd really love to but i need a reason so give me a reason all of you danes and i will talk to you later